Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Polita Clark, a business columnist at the Financial Times, filling in for Gideon Rackman, who's away on leave. In this week's podcast... We're looking at the latest UN-sponsored climate talks, known as COP26, that are due to be hosted by Britain in November. My guest is Richard Kinley, former Deputy Secretary to the UN Climate Change Secretariat. And we're asking, what's the point of COP26? In eight months' time, pandemic allowing, thousands of people will descend on the Scottish city of Glasgow, for the latest in a series of global talks that were launched nearly 30 years ago to tackle the threat of climate change. These talks have produced several treaties, most recently the 2015 Paris Accord, that is supposed to keep global warming well below 2 degrees Celsius and preferably 1.5 degrees. Earth has already warmed by about 1 degree Celsius since the 1800s, and to meet the Paris goals, countries must slash their greenhouse gas emissions especially the top three emitters, China, the US and the EU. So far, that's not remotely happening. The situation was made worse when former US President Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Accord, as his successor Joe Biden made clear in a pre-election pitch to voters. Without American leadership, the world has not made as much progress as we need to meet the goals of Paris. Many countries have fallen far behind their commitments and the planet continues to warm. To meet the 1.5 degree goal, global emissions should be cut by close to 45% by 2030 from what they were in 2010. But so far, governments' climate efforts fall well short. Here's Antonio Guterres, UN Secretary General, speaking last month. The world remains way off target in staying with the 1.5 degree limit of the Paris Agreement. And this is why we need more ambition, more ambition on mitigation, ambition on adaptation and ambition on finance. The global coalition for net zero emissions. So there's huge pressure on the UK government hosting COP26 to drive more concrete action, as Boris Johnson, UK Prime Minister, has acknowledged. Uh, we can't ignore it. Uh, the warnings have been even clearer than they were for COVID, and that is the problem of, of climate change. And uh, that's why uh, we're going to be working very hard to get uh, some, some great things done. Speaking on the show last month, climate scientist Michael Mann told me he was optimistic. I think this favorable shift in the political winds, the youth climate movement, the way that these unprecedented weather disasters have vivified the detrimental impacts of climate change for everyone to see, I think that's all come together in a way that puts us in the most favorable position we've been in yet to see meaningful action here in the United States and meaningful global action. To talk about whether this will happen, I'm joined by Richard Kinley a COP veteran who was one of the first employees at the UN Secretariat that supports the annual talks. He played a key role behind the scenes, helping to shepherd in the Paris Agreement, and he's now president of the Foundation for Global Governance and Sustainability Think Tank. 
He's just co-authored a provocative paper with other UN climate leaders who say it's unthinkable for the UN talks to continue at the pace they have for the last three decades. I began our conversation by asking him to explain what exactly is a COP. It's the conference of the parties. And in this sense, it's the governing body of a treaty. So if we take the first climate change treaty, that's the Framework Convention on Climate Change, agreed in 1992, it has 197 parties, governments who have ratified that and are bound by that treaty. There are then two subsequent treaties, the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, Paris having been agreed in 2015. And these three treaties have their annual get-togethers simultaneously as what is now known as the COP. In some ways, it's like a parliament, but it's different in a very important way in that instead of having a governing party and a prime minister who leads, you have 197, in this case, equal independent members of this club of governments. And it's quite a difficult task to get them all moving in the same direction, which is the job of a COP president. Right. And this year, the COP president is the UK. That's correct. And one of the things that makes it even more complicated is that over the whole life of this climate regime, which is now up to 30 years, it's been impossible to agree on voting rules so that every decision that is adopted in the COP has to be adopted by consensus. Everyone has to agree. And I sometimes think that given the volume of the decisions and the complexity of some of these decisions, not to mention two international agreements that have been adopted, that this was actually done by consensus, despite the hugely differing interests of the 197 countries who are involved, that it's actually pretty much of a miracle that we've got as far as we have. Yes. So it's this enormous gathering where there's formal negotiations taking place, organised by the UN Climate Change Secretariat, where you previously worked. And then alongside that, there's this huge battalion of talks and conferences and exhibitions going on that are really about businesses and other players who want to meet and talk and try to, in some ways, pressure the people who are negotiating formally. Exactly. And that second part is sometimes called the climate action space or the climate action agenda. And it really is, to me, an essential complement to the formal side. You have this huge array of activity by activists, business interests, local governments, religious communities, etc., all of whom are keen to be involved in advancing the climate agenda, either saying what they're doing or advocating for more action. And this jamboree, this great effort at mobilization and momentum building has in the last decade or so become really, really important in COPS. So COPS now would bring in 20 to 30,000 participants over the two weeks of their duration. And two thirds of those, I think, would now be more interested in what's happening in this jamboree side of things than being intimately involved in the negotiations that are going on in the formal part. But the two pieces together characterize a modern COP. Okay. So the Paris Accord itself was struck in 2015 at COP21 in Paris, obviously. And this year, in the first two weeks of November, we have COP26, which was originally due to take place last year but had to be delayed because of the pandemic. 
Let me ask you, first of all, do you think the meeting can go ahead this year if it can't be held in person? Well, I'm hearing that the indications are promising that an in-person meeting is going to be possible given the progress that's being made with vaccination and control of the pandemic. I don't think it will be a normal COP like one would have had two years ago or three years ago because many parts of the world will still be struggling with the situation. But I suspect we'll have a rather more hybrid event combining in-person and virtual participation in a way that we weren't able to succeed in the past. Right. Well, let's just look at what this COP26 in Glasgow, assuming it does go ahead as planned in November, let's just look at what it may actually achieve. Because you co-wrote a paper recently with other senior UN Climate Secretariat officials in which you said that although these UN climate negotiations had produced some admirable outcomes, not least three landmark global climate treaties, there was still a very dark cloud hanging over them because global carbon dioxide emissions were more than 65% higher now than when the negotiating process was launched in 1990. And in fact, just over a week ago, the UN confirmed that despite the Paris Agreement, countries' plans for cutting emissions are nowhere near what they need to be to meet the goals of that agreement. And you wrote in your paper that it was unthinkable for the talks to continue at the pace that they have since they were launched. And they have to now focus very hard on concrete actions like uh, international coordinated carbon pricing, carbon taxes, eco-tariffs, eliminating fossil fuel subsidies, phasing out coal. I'm just wondering, are you seeing any sign that there could in fact be progress on any of these issues in Glasgow at COP26? I would actually propose to reorient the question because we need to keep the spotlight on what governments are and are not doing. We have significant commitments already in international law that governments have not sufficiently implemented. Governments don't do what international organizations tell them. We live in a world of sovereign states. So to me, the challenge is not what is going to be decided in Glasgow that will enhance implementation. We need to keep the spotlight on governments and what they can and must do. Saying that, though, Glasgow can be a really important staging post to help governments do more in a couple of ways. First, they need to submit their new plans. You mentioned the fact that the indications so far are not very promising. We need to get in the plans which are still missing. And very significantly amongst those are those of the United States and China, where we're seeing some indication, certainly from the United States and the new Biden administration, that they're going to be coming with a significantly more ambitious national plan than was the case even under the Obama administration. So that would be, I think, a really strong resonating signal to the rest of the world that the game is changing. But that alone is not enough. We need similar plans, ambitious plans from China and from others. The EU has already submitted it. It's not bad, but we need a really enhanced level of ambition coming from governments. COP26 is then a chance to take stock of this and for governments, especially for those who were modest, shall we say, to exceed the ambition of what they've said they would do. 
It would be very useful in Glasgow, I think, if we could turn this current debate, one sees a number of governments now coming down in support of targets for 2030 and 2050, a 50% reduction of emissions by 2030 and achieving net zero emissions by 2050. If these goals could be captured in consensus decisions of the COP, I think that would be an additional contributing factor to pushing governments uh, and business to do more than has been the case up to now. So at the moment, you think that the most important thing that COP26 can do is to act as a sort of a a deadline, a staging post, um, a turning point or a moment that serves to pressure countries to enhance their carbon cutting pledges. It's really important to have a realistic expectation of success. We're not going to get some new global agreement in Glasgow, but if we, the day after Glasgow, could say, wow, we came to a turning point, we've rounded the bend and are on a new path towards a more climate ambitious future, that would be an accomplishment. And it's not going to come from a single decision, it's going to come from a whole series of actions by governments, by business, by the finance community, by international development banks. All of these forces need to be moving in a much more ambitious way and in the same direction so that we can put in place the kind of government-wide policies that will come to grips with the problem in a way that it hasn't been done so far. Right. Now, you mentioned China and the US, but China has just been announcing its latest five-year plan. And of course, it's responsible for nearly 30% of global emissions. And yet, in its latest plan, its measures have been widely described as fairly disappointingly weak when it comes to cutting emissions. How big a problem is that right now, do you think? I wouldn't want to understate how important the role of China is along with the U.S. I mean, one of the reasons Paris was such a success was because there was a very strong collaboration between Washington and Beijing. They had common objectives, and those were fulfilled in the Paris Agreement. The powerhouse of the American economy, if it can be injected with new climate ambition, courtesy of policies and initiatives of the Biden administration, would be an extremely powerful signal. Similarly, it would be vastly better if we had more ambition from China aspiring to its global leadership role if it could demonstrate that global leadership role on climate action. It, like many others, faces strong domestic constraints. And one of the things one would hope is that as economic measures and technology advances at an international level, that these sort of things will then automatically be reciprocated in the major economies of the world, including in China, and that that would drive forward the kind of transformation that is necessary, especially in the case of China, moving off of coal. Yeah, because, I mean, realistically, unless we see more progress on a move away from coal and an earlier peaking of emissions, there's no way that the Paris Agreement's temperature targets are going to be met, correct? In the time frame that they need to be met, exactly. The latest report from the Climate Secretariat that you mentioned that came out last week or 10 days ago was quite concerning, actually, that despite the fact that we're now, what, six years out of Paris and 30 years after the climate negotiations started, that we're still seeing global emissions rising is a real damning 
indictment of governments. There really does need to be a whole different approach, a government-wide approach. That's why I'm quite keen on engaging more with heads of state because they need to bring their whole government machinery along to institute the kind of changes across sectors that are necessary to deal with the climate challenge. At the last COP talks in Madrid in 2019, the negotiators failed to agree on rules that could pave the way for some form of international carbon trading. And it is widely thought that there will be agreement on this in Glasgow at COP26. What's that actually mean? Does it mean there could be a meaningful global carbon price anytime soon? The economists of the world and, in fact, most business leaders have been advocating for carbon pricing for at least a decade now. We had an initial effort in this direction in the carbon markets established under the Kyoto Protocol, and they functioned quite well for a short period of time until the system broke down because the supply of credits was much higher than the demand. So one of the key lessons from that is making sure that in any either national or international system that you have the right mix of supply and demand, which means you need the price to be right. And this is something that business and economists have been calling for for a long time. Even fossil fuel companies have been calling for this as a way to realign their business models. A number of countries have been advancing on carbon pricing at the domestic level. It seems as if a, a rather promising model is one which combines carbon pricing or taxing with tax credits or benefits being paid back in particular to consumers so that you keep people on board with this kind of a, an initiative. The real question then is, and we had some limited experience in the 2000 to 2010 period with the clean development mechanism and international emissions trading, that it is possible to have an international system with clear rules that functions. And that, I guess, is what is the challenge to the climate talks at the moment in completing the Paris Agreement rulebook is how this kind of a system would work and in particular how different national systems could connect with each other. You also wrote in the paper, in the footnotes actually, that there had been a shameful lack of action on international aviation and shipping emissions. Do you see any signs that this could improve at COP26? Well, I'm a rather quiet uh, international diplomat. So to call something shameful gives an indication of how deeply I feel about this. The Kyoto Protocol gave responsibility to the International Civil Aviation Organization and to the Maritime Organization to basically get their act together on emissions from shipping and international aviation. And the industry in these two fora managed for at least a decade to make sure that nothing happened. Just as we were on the verge of making some progress, we were hit by the pandemic, which we know has had devastating implications for the international transport sector. And the indications are now that in an effort to save the sector, carbon and climate action initiatives are going to be peddled back while the industry gets back on its feet rather than treating this as an opportunity to come back better. And I think that this is just a continuation of the shameful performance of these two industrial sectors through their international organizations, because they are major contributors to a global problem. 
and need to be part of the solution. We need international travel, but it has to be in a completely different way. And these organizations have failed to come to grips with it. You ask if that's going to happen at the COP. I don't think that will happen. COP traditionally doesn't get into sectoral issues that are the responsibility of other places. It may make encouraging words or encouraging signals in that direction. But it will look to the International Civil Aviation Organization and the International Maritime Organization to act on this and, if I may say so, to get their acts together. So just to sum up then, is it correct to say that you think that the UK hosts of this COP will have achieved a measure of success if, in the run-up to the meeting itself, we see substantial progress in the climate commitments made by the world's biggest emitters, and also if there is a sharpening of the deadlines, really, for when emissions have to be cut by, in other words, we want to have an agreement that emissions need to be nearly halved by 2030 and go down to net zero by 2050, And then also if they can finalise the so-called Paris Agreement rule book that could usher in a new form of international carbon trading, all of that would constitute success in your mind, would it? As I think about this, I would say that as we look to assess Glasgow, we should have a scorecard with five things on it. One is the ambition of the nationally determined contributions or the national plans that countries need to submit. And if they're not ambitious enough, How can countries be pushed to exceed what they've said they would do? Second, developing countries need to be supported by industrialized countries to implement their NDCs. Third, the rule book that you mentioned needs to be completed. And I would hope that with the return of the United States as a positive actor and one that has traditionally been extremely supportive of carbon pricing, that we would see progress on this quickly. Fourthly, translating the general goals of the Paris Agreement into time-bound 2030 and 2050 deadlines would be a major step forward, as long as they're accompanied by aggressive implementation plans. And fifthly, a really significant sign of mobilization and momentum taking climate action forward above and beyond what's been agreed already. That would give Glasgow a gold star. Right. And how will we know if it's failed? Because very often at these events, there is a great cheer at the end and people congratulate themselves on having achieved something. And how are ordinary onlookers supposed to tell if those five measures aren't all met, that what is agreed is in fact important? Well, having spent a good part of my career trying to describe rather weak COP outcomes as great successes, I know exactly what you're saying. I like to say, keep your eye on the emissions pathways. We know we're making progress when we see that we've reached peaking and we begin to see a decline. That's the true measure of success and it is easily measured and it is transparent. That's how we know. That was Richard Kinley ending this edition of the Rackman Review. If you've enjoyed this episode, do tell a friend and don't forget you can find the Rackman Review in any podcast app.